Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 6. We're going to read from Luke 16, 12 through 16. Luke 6, did I say 12? Yeah, thank you, thank you. Sorry. Luke, keep you on your toes. All intentional. Luke 6, 12 through 16. Hear God's word. In those days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night long, he continued in prayer to God. And when the day came... He called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, also Nathaniel is his name, and Matthew, who's also Levi, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, or Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And the grass withers, flowers fade, and this good word endures forever. Thanks be to God. And so again, uh, our passage, it concludes that section of Luke that we've been studying. That section was Luke 5 verse 1 through Luke 6, verse 16. And as we've said in this section, it's all about showing and revealing Jesus fulfilling his mission statement, that inaugural sermon before his hometown crowd in Luke 4, verse 18 and 19, when he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, a day of acceptance of our God. That was his mission statement. It's what I'm here for. And now in chapter 5, 1 through 6, 16, we see him working it out, what that entails. And along with that in this section, the dual purpose of this section is also to show people responding to him in a variety of ways, as he fulfills his like, redeeming mission statement. Some of them respond to him wonderfully. We also see the Pharisees responding poorly to him. And so this episode isn't as exciting as the other ones. I mean, it's not like healing a paralytic or cleansing a leper or this huge catch of fish. But really, in reality, this is the culminating episode of our section. It's the seventh of seven episodes. It's the final one, the culminating one. It's set apart in a special way in that Jesus has this extended time of prayer. It marks it off. And so we we see Jesus choosing the apostles, which is a momentous step in his mission And they give, you know, the fullest response to Jesus. And they commit it all to him. And so three points. First is the communion Jesus prioritizes. The second, the kind of people Jesus calls. And the third, the commission Jesus gives. 
So the communion Jesus prioritizes first. Notice verse 12. It's a beautiful verse where it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night long he continued in prayer to God. All night long. And one of Luke's characteristics is that he puts special attention in prayer. It's just one of the special features. Everybody talks about the importance of prayer, but Luke just kind of puts special attention in prayer. Among the gospel writers, uh, Luke was a man of prayer. And he really wanted those he wrote, men, women, boys, girls, to cultivate a life of prayer. He saw it as essential. He wants you to see it as essential. And this episode is Luke's description of Jesus' most sustained time of prayer right here. In fact, it's the only time in the Gospels that we actually read that Jesus prayed all night long. All night long. He prays at night, late into the night, other times, but this is the only actual time we read he prayed all night long. Why did he do so? I mean, normally he slept. Jesus slept like everyone else. But here he prays all night long. And so one of the reasons, you know, come out from in these days, what are these days like? Well, it's in the midst of opposition, rising opposition. He can feel it. I mean, he's experiencing it. I mean, verse 11, after healing a guy with a withered hand, they get together, the Jewish leadership, and they plot how to destroy him. Right on the heels of that, Jesus is praying all night long. I mean, they're mad at him for letting the disciples take care of their needs on the Sabbath and showing mercy on the Sabbath. Both things very appropriate on a day of rest. They want to kill him. How does Jesus respond? He prays. It's, you know, we can hear David behind this. David prayed similar as we would imagine Jesus prays. He said this, Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. I mean, Jesus is owning that prayer for himself. In fact, you know, Jesus is the true psalm singer of Israel. I mean, Jesus is the psalm singer. Jesus is the true David. These psalms are really his voice as our mediator, giving voice to the difficulties of living in a fallen world, representing us before the Father. These are his prayers. He's praying in the midst of hardship and opposition in a solitary place all night long. Matthew Henry, the old commentator, Puritan commentator, said these great words. He goes, we are never less alone than when we are thus alone. Hardship presses in on us. You've got it. We go out alone to pray and God meets with us there. He meets with us in the low place. But even more than this, even more than the rising opposition, Jesus in these days is praying because his disciples are increasing. Notice in verse 17, there's this great crowd of disciples. A lot of people are gathering around him. His disciples are increasing and it's time to select to choose his primary leaders to help him. He needs help. 
And so he consults with his father about those he'll choose to share his mission with him, aid him even in extending the kingdom. These guys are going to be committed to him in a special way. They're going to be with him. They're going to learn from him. They're going to watch him. They're going to heal on his behalf, cast out demons on his behalf, herald his coming to different cities, preach and explain who he is after his resurrection and ascension, write the New Testament. I mean, these guys are, they're a big deal. What he's doing is a very big decision. It's an important decision. So he spends the whole night praying for these men. How long did he pray? When did he start? Did he pray eight hours? Eight hours? Ten hours? Through the four watches of the night? Six to nine, nine to twelve, twelve to three, three to six. The whole night praying for these men, talking with God about whom he should choose. He really models for us Luke 10, 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord the harvest to send out laborers. He's doing that. I think it's John Bunyan who said these words, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. And I just tend to perpetually get that confused. I do a whole lot before I pray. And then when things get tough and things don't work out the way I want them to, then I go to pray. But what if the whole paradigm in our thinking changed and we prayed a whole lot and then got to work? One of my favorite stories, I know I've shared it before, but I just love the story. It's about Hudson Taylor, a hero missionary in the 19th century, started the China Inland Mission in 1865. And so he's back in England from China, and he's very, very sick, bedridden, paralyzed, can't get out of bed. He thinks he's going to be like that forever. But his heart is on China and unreached people in the inland provinces of China, and he can't do anything about it, or can he? And so on his bed, unable to move, with his heart burdened for these inland provinces that have no gospel witness, He puts a map of China between the posts at the foot of his bed. And for months, he prays, he prays for the provinces. He prays for two workers per province. And without being able to do anything, nothing except pray, God raises them all up and raises the money. They have a flood of missionaries in a revival time in these inland provinces of China. He looks back on that time years later of this what he calls forced inactivity, when he couldn't do it and God clearly did it as the highest and happiest point of his life. Years later, a man said to him, you must sometimes be tempted to be proud because of the wonderful way God has used you. I doubt any man living has had greater honor. To which he responded, on the contrary, you often think God must have been looking for someone small enough and weak enough for him to use and that he found me. It's all over this passage. Just imagine how Jesus prayed for these guys. Father, you know Simon. He's so eager. I love that about him. But Father, he's impetuous. He's wishy-washy. Is he the one? Or Father, how about James and John? I mean, they are courageous. I've got to give it to them. I need that on my leadership team. But sons of thunder, 
But I mean, they are arrogant and they're really harsh. Father, how about Thomas? I like that sensitive heart, that thoughtful disposition. But Father, he deals with melancholy. Can he handle it? He, he borders on skepticism and just fear. Is he the guy? He's working through by name this crowd of disciples. Later, he's going to say in his high priestly prayer, John 17, I have manifested your name to those you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. The Father's giving him those men he needs on his leadership team as he prays all night long. And we look at that and we go, I don't know if I would have picked all those men. You know? I mean, one of them especially, the last one, he's always figures in as the last one, the one who betrays him. In John 6, it says Jesus knows that about him when he picks him. John 6 also says he knows he's a devil, but he picks him. He picks Judas knowing that about him. He picks Judas to show him the grace of his kingdom, to let him see him. He's calling him all the time to repentance. He, he picks him. I'm sure that sometimes he wondered whether he had heard the father accurately. But it was the father's choice, even though it wasn't easy. And you know, that really does encourage me. You pray for things, don't you? Important things. You feel like God's led you a certain direction. And sometimes it just doesn't work out the way you thought it would have worked out had God led you that way. And yet we look at it and say, you know, I, I did pray. And this is God's will. He's doing something different than what I expected. And it's going to be good. So at this pivotal point, Jesus communes all night with his father. He retreats to pray. It's comfortable for him. And if the God-man needs to pray all night for a big decision, how much more do we? No. And he had all wisdom. Also, just think, when we look at Jesus pray all night long, Jesus is ascended at the right hand of God, and Hebrew says he intercedes all the time for you. And so you imagine him praying for you at the right hand of the Father as he's praying in his earthly ministry on behalf of these men. And you know that you don't have it all together, and these men did not, and Jesus knew it. And he prayed for them. The kind of people Jesus calls. Second point. Well, Jesus calls his great number of disciples to him, many are gathering to him. Recall, Jesus gave us the criteria for being a disciple in Luke 5, 31 and 32. In our section, Pharisees and the scribes are just pummeling him because he's feasting with Levi, the tax collector. And Jesus looks at him and says, look, uh, it's not the well who need a physician, it's the sick I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus is gathering and calling his disciples to him. Who are these disciples? They are people who know they're sick and sinful and therefore know they need Jesus. And we see a disciple is a repenter. It's a repenter. He calls us to repentance. We see something about repentance here in that repentance is like leaving like your way of doing things, your self-satisfied way of doing life and saying, you look at a dead end, I need Jesus. That's repentance. 
A disciple is literally a learner. It comes from the verb to learn. Not so much in an academic sense, but learning as I'm with you, I'm observing you. Your life is rubbing off on my life. We're learning from our master, Christ. And so we think of ourselves, do we think of ourselves as disciples? You know, a disciple. How much does that way of viewing ourselves enter into our relationships and our struggles at work and with friends and family? Are we conscious of being a learner of Christ right here? Well, from this larger group, Jesus chooses 12, 12 men. He names them apostles, apostles. And so the number 12 is symbolic. It's intentional. It's not haphazard. It has significance. You remember there's 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. Jacob had 12 sons. They become the patriarchs of Israel. Jesus is intentionally doing something here. He's, he's building on that and even completing that. He's not scrapping it and doing something entirely new, not just replacing it with something new. There's continuity. He's building on it and completing it. So by choosing 12 men, he's saying something about himself. Okay, what is he saying about himself? He's saying, well, I'm the, I'm the new Moses. Like, Moses led the tribes of Israel in the Exodus, and he gathered them at the mountain and made a covenant with them. I'm Moses leading you on a new Exodus, a new covenant. I'm David. Like David was surrounded by the 12 tribes, his kingdom and harmony and effectiveness and growth. I'm the true David. I'm here, and I'm starting up my kingdom. And he's saying something about his purpose. Therefore, he's continuing the one people of God. He's reconstituting it. Remember, 10 tribes, a lot of them fell out. It's in disarray. So much has happened. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a mess. I'm reconstituting Israel. I'm restoring. I'm carrying to completion the, the hopes and the promises for Israel. I've come to make a new covenant out of the old, a new kingdom out of the old, a new worldwide people out of the old. I'm, I'm, I'm expanding the wineskins, but in continuity with the promises given to the patriarchs. And so look at this group, this, the kind of men Jesus chooses to be the leaders of this reconstituted Israel, this new body of believers, the church. And you look at these men that he prayed all night over, and they are all insignificant. And they're all nobodies. And none are rich, and none are connected, and none are cultured, and none are educated. None are from the inner circle in Jerusalem. None are scribes, elders, Pharisees, or Sadducees. I mean, the omission <laughs> speaks volumes. The Sanhedrin's assessment of Peter and John later in Acts 4 is you're uneducated common men. So looking at these guys, they're just ordinary guys. Like there's a bunch of them like them. Eleven of them are country folks from Galilee, way up north. Judas Iscariot looks like the exception, but he's a country folk from the south of Judea. Iscariot is a man from Kerioth in the south of Judea. But maybe he has a little bit more status than them since Galilee was kind of despised because it was a place overrun by Gentiles and worldliness. 
So Jesus selects this 12, this symbolic group, his core leadership team, and trusts them to represent Jesus, to explain to the world who he is, his significance, to organize the renewed people of God after his resurrection, and they're just ordinary nobodies from nowhere, dismissed, discarded, and really disdained by the elites. And that's who he picks. He didn't go after the strongest resume or the strongest pedigree. He chose 12 common men with modest gifts, many of whom kind of disappear from history. At least, them are four, at least four of them are fishermen and probably more. Matthew or Levi is a tax collector, pretty despised. Simon is a zealot. He's an angry guy. The rest we're just not sure of. We're not sure about Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and James, or for that matter, Judas Iscariot. And Jesus prays all night long, and this is what he comes up with. And we kind of think he'd come up with something better, but this is who he comes up with, he and the Father. (laughs) So why? And let me give you a few reasons. One, Jesus himself is this way. He is a common, ordinary guy. He left his throne as the number one person in the universe and went as low as he could go because that's the gospel. He wanted to experience all the difficulties of, will I have food this month? Difficulties. Second, well, Galilee. Why Galilee? Well, Isaiah said, prophesied that God would do an amazing work in the dark region of Galilee. Jesus takes contempt upon himself. Galilee was contemptuous. And Jesus wanted to reach Gentiles. Galilee was where the nations gathered. Old scholar Bruce says this, Jesus had to, third, Jesus had to choose this kind of people because these are the people that came to him. The elites didn't come. The Sadducees didn't come. The Pharisees didn't come. They They had it going on too much for Jesus. They were too important for him. Those that came were these. They knew they needed him. But probably the main reason is that God likes to use the foolish to shame the wise. He likes to use the weak to shame the strong, the low and despised, to bring to nothing the great and the mighty. That's how God likes to work. He likes to show his power in our weakness, his grace in our weakness. He likes to do that. That's something about the nature of God goes low to lift us up. That Oswald Chambers quote is just so beautiful. You know, God likes to use nobodies. They know they need him, but he likes to use somebodies as long as they know they're nobodies. He likes to use us when we are desperate and needy and weak. If you find yourself in that place today, that's a good place before God because that's what we are, regardless of we know it or not. I mean... The cross of Christ is that way. The the worst defeat, the most traumatic defeat in history is the ultimate victory because God goes low to deal with sin, to lift us up and redeem us. So John Newton writes a letter, and I really do like it, just thinking of who is important, you know, who is important, and we think of, like, you might not be chosen to office in the church. Like, is there a place? Like, who are the important people in the church? He says this to a letter to a friend, one man like Mr. Whitfield is raised up to preach the gospel with success through a considerable part of the earth. Another is called to a humbler service of sweeping the streets, 
or cleaning this great minister's shoes. Now, if the latter is thankful and content in his poor station, if he can look without envy, yea, with much love on the man that is honored, if he can rejoice in the good that is done or pray for the success of those whom the Lord sends, I see not why he may not be as great a man in the sight of God as he who is followed and admired by thousands. Upon a supposition of degrees of glory, I should think it probable the best Christians will have the highest place. And I'm inclined to think that if you and I were to travel in search of the best Christian in the land or are qualified to distinguish who deserved the title, it is more than two to one we should not find the person in a pulpit or any public office of life. Let me just say that that is the case. Perhaps some old woman at her wheel or some bedridden person hid from the knowledge of the world in a mud-walled cottage would strike our attention more than any of the doctors or reverends with whom we are acquainted. Let us not measure men, much less ourselves, by gifts or services. One grain of grace is worth abundance of gifts. To be self-abased, to be filled with the spirit of love, peace, gentleness, to be dead to the world, to have the heart deeply affected with a sense of the glory and grace of Jesus, to have our own will bowed to the will of God, these are the great things more valuable, if compared in the balance, than to be an instrument of converting a province or a nation. And how wonderful. So we don't know what our just humble growth and grace, how Jesus loves to use it in extraordinary ways. And he's showing us that here. But along with that too, he loves to do this in the fifth place because he loves to work with us and change us over time. The fact that he calls Simon Peter on the front end is a prophecy of what grace is going to do because he's not Peter yet. He's unstable. He's not rock solid. The fact that he has Thomas and that Thomas later is going to give the strongest confession in the whole gospel of John. He's the exemplary bold faith from a melancholy, doubting man. He loves that kind of stuff. He loves taking greedy Levi and enthralling him with the riches of the gospel. He loves taking rebellious, angry, violent Simon the Zealot and making him love a man who goes to a Roman cross to save the world. And he loves putting us together with different kinds of people. You know, you look around, we're just different. You know, there are different temperaments, gifting. It's kind of a sense of humor here, really, in this band of 12 guys. You got James and John with Thomas. I mean, that must have been tough. You got Matthew, who loved Rome's taxes and profited from it. And you got Simon the Zealot, who loathed Rome's taxes and wanted to kill you, kill Rome because of it. And those two guys are on a leadership team together. What must that have been like? Something about sharpening our gifts together, bumping up against each other in grace that God wants. So we have conflicts in the church. You know, it's kind of the design that he brings us into those sorts of relationships. And he loves taking common people and raising them up. And so in Luke 22, he says, you men that are nobodies here, your names are going to be on the pillar. Luke 22, you're going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In Revelation 21, when the city of God descends, these men's names are on the foundations of the wall of the city. From utter nobodies to the best kind of somebodies ever. And your names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your names are inscribed in heaven right now. All right, finally, real quick, the commission Jesus gives, Jesus names these men apostles, comes from the Greek word apostello, it means to send, send. 
He's sending them. And in its formal sense, the idea of apostle speaks of identity. You're one with the sender. Like a person looks at you and they see who sent you, Jesus. You have authority. You have the authority of the sender. You have humility. You can only do what the sender told you to do and nothing else. You can only say what the sender told you to say and nothing else. You have identity, authority, and humility. That's what he confers upon these men. You are me with them. Like what I would say, you say. What I would do, you do to these people because I want you to represent me before the world. And really, Jesus is the true apostle. He is one with the Father. He relates the authority of the Father. He shows humility doing only what the Father does. He commissions these 12 to do that, and they're going to do that in their life and ministry right in the New Testament, give an eyewitness to Jesus, but also in a sense too, important sense, each of you is an apostle. An apostle with a lowercase a, you're not right in Scripture, but you're an apostle, you're sent. You're at one with Christ, united to Him. You have the authority of Christ, His anointing, His Spirit is upon you. If you're in Him by faith, you have humility. You only do and say what He tells you to do and say and nothing more. But wherever God has placed you, in the home God has placed you, in the work God has placed you, the sports team God has placed you, the friend group God has placed you, you are an apostle. You are sent because Jesus wants, Jesus wants you to reflect Him right there. Right there. It's not, it's not easy. Sometimes tense and sometimes awkward, but it's beautiful. You're one with Christ. You have the authority of Christ. You're sent by Christ in humility of Christ to represent Him. And He wants to do that and change people and encourage people, uplift people, correct people through you. Right there where you are. All of you, whether you're old or whether you're young, you're an apostle, lowercase a. And we don't have it all together, just like these men didn't have it all together. You know, John, John Bunyan, I think, no, John Newton said, end of his life, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. <laughs> I remember, you know, I'm a great sinner and I have a great savior. I mean, if I could boil it down, but you get old, you know, you get old. I'm a great sinner, I know it. I have a great savior and I get to represent him. I'm sent. So the question is, do we, do we live like that? You know, the one last thing I'm going to be through, but um, Clark and Christian Norton, our, our missionaries to Ukraine, they, gave, they just gave an update. So there's this young couple, Vasya and Vilka, who are from Kharkiv. Now that's in the east, right? And it's been overrun, atrocious, violent, terrible, terrible. They worked with IVP there. And they have to flee, leave everything. A young, cute little couple. They go all the way across Ukraine, they arrived at Lviv on the western side where refugees are flooding and they make it to the Norton's church. And they, uh, you know, the Norton's church has been play, praying for new leaders for years. We need new leaders. They arrive and they plug in and they get connected and they just take it all in and they quit fleeing. Like they don't go to safety, they stay in Lviv and they accept a long-term, full-time church planting intern internship in the midst of a war. Like, they stop. It's an answer to prayers. Like, God used a war and all those awful things to uproot this young couple and send them to Lviv and answer to prayer. And they're going to be receiving refugees and ministering gospel mercy to them in the midst of chaos. And just encourages my heart to say, look, you might be in total uncertain times, total difficulty. You don't have anything to give, maybe. 
We were in spiritual warfare every day. But you're sent right where you are, and you do. You get to represent Christ. You get to fill you up. You get to go out in a solitary mountain and commune with God and have him fill you up again so you can pour yourself out into those he sent you to. And it's a beautiful, beautiful mission we're given. All kind of hope. Amen.